from Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you surely will die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to, see, to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you this morning, starting off this new series. I'm excited about it, uh, but before we continue any further, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we have already, in song and in speech, called out to you, uh, recognizing in, in your presence that we are entirely dependent upon you. And even now we call out to you because we are dependent upon your word. We need to hear you speak to us because your word is life. It shapes us and makes us into the people we were made to be. And so we ask now as we, we look back to the moment when things were how they should be, that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would inspire us, that you would enable us to long and to dream for what you have made the world to be and what you are doing. Lord, would you please give us a vision and shape us through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, my goal for the next three months or so, this will kind of like go until Christmas, is to help us all at a deeper level see that the Bible, with all of its diversity, is one profound, incredible story. From Genesis at the very beginning to Revelation to the very end, there is one story that that brings us through all of Scripture. That's my goal, for us to see that and feel it more clearly. And one of the reasons for that goal is just awareness that that's not always how we find the Bible when we're reading it. It's not how we experience it. I mean, perhaps you've done one of those read through the Bible in a year in order, and you've started at Genesis, and you found yourself kind of getting bewildered or lost. Or even if you've grown up going to Sunday school and you know all the stories, it's hard to know how it all fits together, isn't it? I mean, at the beginning it works okay. You know that there's the creation and then, and then there's the eating of the fruit and things kind of fall apart and then there's the flood and then it starts getting blurry. You know, there's you know, the Tower of Babel and there's this whole stuff about people not being able to have children and having a hard time getting married. And, and then there's plagues with bugs and walls falling down and, and then giants getting slain and somehow a preacher is swallowed by a fish which is one of my least favorite ideas. And then you have other stuff, like, you know, isn't there a place where a donkey speaks to a person? And then that doesn't even include the the sacrifices and the skin disease laws and strange stories of prophets who run around naked or who lie down on one side for many months. And you're like, how does this all fit together? It's a little bewildering. And it doesn't seem at times like it is one coherent story but it is. What we have here in God's word is a story more than anything that is about God. It's a story, as our bulletin is already saying, about God's mission, telling the story of how we broke everything in the worst possible way, but yet then God in his mission is redeeming everything in the most remarkable ways. And so my goal is for us to see that more clearly, and not just to see it, because information in itself is not that useful, but to see it in a way that shapes us so that we can see our story more clearly and see how we are a part of what God is doing in the world so that we could join with him in this mission. Now, anytime you get a somewhat sprawling, complicated story, it's sometimes helpful to have a kind of a key, some way of saying, what are some of the key themes that I can focus on? For example, if you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, it can be a helpful exercise to realize that a lot of what The Lord of the Rings is about is power, and thinking through how do we see this theme of power running through from beginning to end? Well, in the same way, I want us to recognize kind of three themes that we're going to keep on coming back to that kind of lie near the very heart of this biblical story and narrative. And those three themes or three focuses have to do, first of all, with our relationship with God. That is a theme that we come back to again and again, our relationship with God. And secondly, another theme that we see is our relationship with each other, who we are, our identity, and how we relate to people. And finally, we'll see a theme of how we have a home, how we relate to the world around us, how we long for home, how we need home. 
And the phrase I'll use, and I'll keep coming back to, to kind of focus us on those three themes, is that really at the heart of the Bible is a story of how we were meant to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. There's those themes of, of place, people, and our relationship with God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And I think if we continue to look at those three themes, we'll start seeing how the Bible fits together in one coherent story. And we'll look at those themes first today in the story of creation. Now, there's a little bit of a difficulty that I think we face every time we come to Genesis chapters 1 and chapters 2, because especially if you have grown up going to church as I have, this is a story that you're probably pretty familiar with. In fact, it becomes so familiar that it's hard to see anything new. It's hard to be struck by it, which is surprising because it is a remarkable story, isn't it, of how God, just by speaking, brought this world into existence. And with his words, he, he brought order out of chaos, separating day from night and, and land from sea. And not only did he bring order, but he brought life, bringing animals and plants, birds, and, and then finally he made us. And essentially, at that moment, he gave us kind of the keys to the car. He said, I have made this world. Now you, you work it. You care for it. That's what I'm giving to you. It's a remarkable story, but it's a familiar one. But yet, it's important for us to keep coming back to, and here's why. Because these chapters give us a vision for what the world should be and for what the world could be. And so as we see them, they invite us to dream. There's not a whole lot of dreaming that's happening these days, at least in my opinion. Have you, have you felt that? There is just so much weight, so much pessimism. The artists of the day, you don't see hope-filled songs or, or art. It's, it's dark. And, and the political thing, there's just so much it seems like the greatest hope people have is just that we don't self-destruct over the next generation. There's very little dreaming. But here, we can be reminded that this world that we see is not all there is, that there is something greater, there is something more beautiful that our hearts can long for. And that's my goal this morning, as we're looking at this creation to say what how should things be? What were things meant to be so that we can see where God also is taking us? And so as we start, let me just begin by inviting you for a moment to kind of daydream. And let me ask you this question. If you could design one year of your life and have complete creative control over it to make the absolutely perfect year, I mean, you can have complete control. Maybe you have just inherited millions of dollars and you can stop working. Maybe that's what you want. Or or you can be wherever you want, with whomever you want, want, doing whatever you want. Just take a moment and think through what for you would be the perfect year. All right, so let me, let me kind of ask you, I, I'm, I'm assuming that one of the things that's in your imagination as you're thinking about it is a place, right? There's some place that you're going to call home, whether it's like the Bahamas or even something locally, there's a place that you're connected to. And we're going to talk about that too, because place is important. And my guess 
is that you've also been thinking about the people you will do this with. And, and we'll be talking about that because that also is what we see when, when this passage describes this perfection. But let me ask you, was God front and center of that dream, that perfect year, your relationship with him? Now, that doesn't seem like a fair question because probably most of us go, well, you didn't give me enough time. If I had really thought well about it, I would have eventually thought about how worship. But, but the point is, we don't have a big enough imagination. Our minds could go even further. We haven't dreamed big enough until we recognize where God is in that dream. Because here's the thing, and here's what the creation narrative tells us, that more than anything else, you and I were meant for a relationship with God, for fellowship with him. That's where life is found. You could, I've heard it described, and I think it's right, that it's like God is like the sunshine and we are planets. We have our center orbiting around him. That's where we find our order and our meaning. And what's more, just like the sun gives light and heat, so God is the source of life and beauty and energy and joy. And our lives do not happen and certainly do not have joy without him being at the center. But there's a reason when we were thinking of our perfect year that for at least many of us, that, that was not our first thought. And that's, that's because whenever we talk about relationship with God or fellowship with God, we have a hard time getting our minds around it, don't we? I mean, what does a relationship look like with someone who is so completely different from you? I have a hard time remembering to take out the garbage. God hears every single prayer he is aware of every single atom, every star in the sky. He is holding everything together. We are so different. What does it look like to, to have fellowship, to have a relationship with someone like that? And what's more, God is not embodied, right? I mean, we don't see him. There's not a verbal conversation that we're regularly have. What, what does it look like with a relationship when you can never see someone face to face, at least not in this life? And so I think that's part of the reason why whenever we dream, we have a hard time finding God in the middle of it because it seems so abstract, so intangible. We know we should have a place for him, but our hearts have a hard time doing that. Well, I think it's interesting when we look here and we see what fellowship with God looks like in the beginning, that it's, it's not as abstract maybe as we're thinking. Now, this isn't a complete picture, but I just want to notice a few snapshots of what this beautiful planet-orbiting sun fellowship between humanity and God looks like. There's a few things. Do you notice first there's conversation? So when, when God speaks first, and we saw this last week, God blesses man and, and says, here's what I want you to do, and gives very clear instructions. And here there's the back and forth where it's, you know, different commands that he gives to Adam. And then even at one point there's a conversation where God is bringing animals and, and Adam, and, he, and God is basically asking Adam, what are you going to name this? And Adam says, cow. He's like, okay, that's a great name. There's this back and forth. Can you imagine that, though? Can you imagine being able to just talk with God, to hear him speak to you? That's part of the fellowship that we have here. And we also have another thing that I think we understand in our human relationships, and that's, that's gift giving. 
I mean, isn't that a key part of the way that we relate to each other? There's a delight when it's someone's birthday or Christmas and we have just the right gift and we love being able to give it to them and have them open it up and, and feel surprised and we feel delight. Well, God has that same exact instinct. In fact, that's where we get it from. I mean, he's the one who, who makes this beautiful world. And then he says, here. And can you imagine what it must have been like for God when, when Adam realizes there's no one around that's, that's right for him, and then God kind of like gives him this present of, of a companion, and, and Adam sees Eve for the first time, and how delighted God must have been at giving this gift. That's, that's part of the fellowship that we have of God giving, and humanity receiving and delighting in it. And also in this, in this beautiful relationship we see in the garden, there's something else that I don't think we pick up on that much, and that is partnership. We talked about this a little bit last week, but if you, if you pay attention closely to the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you begin with God essentially being the great real estate developer, right? I mean, he makes the world, he is carefully dividing it, putting everything in the right place, he's laying things out right, and then what does he do? He comes to, to Adam and Eve and says, okay, this is what I've started, pay attention to what I've done, and now you keep doing it. Because he says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That's bring order, fill it with life, just like I've been bringing order and filling it with life. There is this side-by-side work that's implied. And we, and we see it even more explicitly in the, in the scene that I was just alluding to, where, where God brings the creatures. And he's the one who has created the creatures to begin with, but then he gives Adam the task of naming the creatures. And the point is, there is a relating to each other between God and man that is partnership, working together. I bring this up because I think we oftentimes have a fairly thin view of what relating to God looks like. Usually when we think of a relationship with God, we think of something very passive and quiet, where it's just kind of this internal opening our heart and talking and then kind of listening as we read God's word. And let me say, that's absolutely a part of our fellowship with God. But that's not all it is. And if that's all we emphasize, well, people who just love sitting down for a couple hours and talking with someone over coffee, that's a great image. But some of us don't relate primarily that way. Some of us relate more by doing stuff with others. And you know what? There is that also here as well. That there's fellowship here as God and humanity together work towards bringing beauty and order to this world. Now, here's a thought to consider. When you are working, doing something good, whether it's with spreadsheets trying to make your company deliver its goods more efficiently, or whether it's fixing an air conditioner, or any other thing, you are, in a sense, partnering with God, who is the one who delights in bringing order and life and good to the world around you. There is a sense that you are drawing near to God when you are aware of this, and it's part of our relationship with him. So here we see just a few pictures of, you know, you know, conversation. There is gift giving and receiving. There's partnership. Fellowship with God means much more than that. But here are some of the images to try to get our minds around it. But the, the larger point is this is how things were meant to be, how they should be, how they could be. I mean, this is the essence of life. Everything else that I'm going to talk about flows from this beautiful relationship. And we can kind of actually see the importance of this relationship by actually considering what the absence of that relationship has done to this world. I mean, what are the questions that haunt people? Who 
am I? What is my meaning? What should I be doing with my life? Do I belong? Am I loved? So much of what we do is to try to answer those questions. And the not knowing that causes us to ache. But you know, for Adam and Eve, they didn't have that ache. Who am I? I am created by God. I am his image. I am one of his children. What am I meant to do? God has given me this task. I am to partner with him in obedience, worshiping him. Do I belong? Yes, because I am loved by the God who gives gifts after gifts to me. Now, the very last thing in our passage tells us that, that, that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, which is always, you know, like growing up in grade school, that always is like something that provokes giggles. It's a weird statement. But, but the point is that there is a complete willingness to be vulnerable. There, there is no need for self-protection, no need for hiding, because these people know exactly who they are. They know with complete confidence that they belong. They know what they're meant to do. There is joy. There is life. Because they have fellowship with God. We were meant for fellowship with God. Well, the second thing I think we can see as this, this, you know, this picture causes us to imagine how things should be is that we were meant for life together. I always find one of the most surprising parts of this passage comes to me in verse 18, because if you've been following with chapter 1 again and again, whenever we have God made these things, it says, and it was good. And it was good. And now for 17 verses, you've had this beautiful picture of all the good things God has been doing for Adam. And then suddenly in verse 18, you see, this is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, we had just said Adam has this beautiful relationship with God, complete connection where there is conversation and gift-giving and partnership. And he has a beautiful world around him, and yet it's not enough. Which is interesting because I think sometimes we today idolize solitude. I mean, going a couple hundred years ago, you know, Henry David Thoreau wrote, I never found the companion that was as companionable as solitude. And sometimes some of like the, the spiritual figures, even in Christianity, speak of the real importance of solitude, and they're not wrong. There's value in solitude, but it's not enough. It is not good for us to be alone. In fact, God goes even further than that. It's not just that it's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to be independent. Because he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now again, Adam here is without fault. He has no insecurities, no lack. He is perfect. And he is not in a world that is brutal. He is in a garden that is easy to work. And yet even still, he needs a helper. I think we get it in our minds that anytime we need to depend on someone else, it's a sign of weakness, of inadequacy, and that if we were truly who we should be, we wouldn't need to ask anyone else for help. But that's not the way it is, is it? Because even in the garden when there is no lack, God says he needs a helper because we're not designed to be independent. So what does God do? Well, he starts by kind of 
preparing Adam, by showing everything else, and Adam sees all these animals and names, but he realizes no one is my equal. None of these things can be my helper. And then we know what happens next. And can you just imagine how Adam's eyes must have opened wide when he sees Eve for the first time? And what he sees is someone who is his equal, and yet who is very different from him. Now, this passage is, is regularly gone to, to think through what marriage is about. And fair enough, this is the first marriage, we can say. But it's not just that. It's also the first picture of society, the first community. And here we see also what God's design for how we are to relate to each other. We were meant to be different from each other and equal from each other and in that equality and, and difference depending on each other so that we can help each other so that we're not alone. Now, if we can just start to, to have that vision, we realize just how different that is from today. I mean, right now it seems there is so much divide between those who are different, whether we're talking about difference in the political spectrum or difference in terms of economics or difference in terms of race. And sometimes it seems that the only one that I trust, this is the message around us, the only person I trust are the people who are same as I am. And anyone who is different from me is below me. But we see something so utterly other to that here, don't we? Where there is equality and dependence upon each other, even amidst deep differences. Now we shouldn't like have this kind of false view of it being somehow this simple thing. Inevitably, there was going to be differences. Eve was perhaps going to have a different vision of how to lay out the garden than Adam. They might have different sleep patterns, different tastes of the fruits that they like or whatever. There is going to still be that, that complicated dance of working through differences and working together. That's not imperfection. That's just part of being different. But yet there was trust. Again, going back to that image, they were naked and not ashamed. That means not only are they hide, not hiding themselves from God, but they're not hiding themselves from each other. In, in, in a sense where they are so deeply grounded in who they are with God, they are able to be open and vulnerable and trusting because they know they are safe with each other. Can you imagine that level of trust in our lives? Removing, of course, the whole nakedness thing, which, of course, will completely throw our imaginations off here. But just imagine that level of vulnerability and openness at your workplace, where there's no guarding, no, I need to prove myself, no, I'm going to cover myself when I've made a mistake. Or in your neighborhood, where there's no sense of we need to keep external appearances strong and never let anyone in, but a willingness to open up and trust and depend upon each other. That is how we were made to be because we were not meant to be alone. We were meant for life together. The third aspect of this vision that I want to point out is that not only were we made for fellowship with God and for life together, but we were made for home. You know, home is kind of a difficult thing to define. If I were to ask you, how would you define what home is, you, like me, might struggle at first. I've heard some people say, home is wherever my loved ones are. My family is where my home is. And I get where people are coming from because that's a huge part of home. It's relationships. But it's not everything. 
a few months ago, or actually about a month ago, our family just had a few-day road trip in St. Louis. And we had fun. We stayed at a hotel, and the hotel was fine. There was nothing wrong with the hotel. But I, I think at some point, as I recall, at least someone said, hey, I can't wait till I get home. Now, if I had said, well, you know home is where your family is, I think, I think they would have looked at me strangely, and appropriately so. Because it's not just that, right? Home is also a place. It's a place where we fit, a place that we have cared for and kind of put our stamp on, and a place that has kind of cared for us and in some ways put its stamp upon us, because the reality is we are physical creatures. And so we're designed for a physical place to belong to. Now, what's striking to me, and I think we just overlook this sometimes because we have this tendency to go hyper-spiritual in a way the Bible never needs to, is that throughout the story of redemption, we keep on coming back to place as an important thing. So later on, when we get to the promise that God makes to Abraham, he promises him not just people, not just a relationship, but a place. I'm going to give you a home. And what's the story of redemption in Exodus is leading them out of a place that isn't their home so that they can go home. In the Psalms and the prophets, they speak of how excited they are about the city of God. It's a place. And at the very end of everything, the very last thing that is described for us in the Bible is the place we will one day call home. Place matters. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in these opening chapters that are describing how things are meant to be, there's a lot of attention given to place. In fact, because we didn't want to make this reading even longer, we omitted a paragraph, and the whole paragraph, all it was talking about is how the rivers are flowing in certain ways, and how there's gold, and how there's all these things, because, because Genesis 2 wants to speak so much about place. And the point is that when God made us, he gave us a home. So you have this, this beautiful little detail where it speaks about God planting a garden and, and how the trees were beautiful to look at and wonderful to taste. And God was this, you could say, an interior decorator because that was their home. He, he cared about beauty and comfort. And then when he hands the garden over to Adam, he hands it over for him to work it and to keep it. In other words, he is going to now continue to refine it and design it and make it more and more his place that he cares for and a place that cares for him. That is home, and that matters to God. In fact, the only thing about this that's different from how we think of home is there is nothing bad about this. There is no pipes that are falling apart. There are no mosquitoes that are biting him as he's gardening and no hot sweat and plants that refuse to grow no matter how hard you work. There's no frustration because there is no brokenness. There's just utter and complete harmony where, where he and Eve are not just taking stuff from the land but caring for it and the land is yielding its fruits and there's a complete connection and peace and shalom. That's how things were meant to be. Can you get in your minds at least a little bit about what is being described here? I realize it's so different from our lives. But can you imagine this, this peaceful wholeness of fellowship with God, deep connection and dependence upon each other, and harmony with, with home, the world around them? 
That's how we were meant. That's how this world was meant to be. And of course, we lost that. When we broke things, when we disobeyed God, we were like the planets that decided it was going to spin away from the sun and go into our own darkness. And now fellowship with God is something that we have lost through sin. And we see the way that relationships work, how bad we can be at loving each other, and we see even how broken this world is. And we are not in Eden anymore, but we have not lost the longing for it. Whoever the person is, wherever they are in the world, what drives each of us most is a longing for Eden. If, if you are someone who hungers to prove yourself and to succeed and to show that you are worth something, you are longing to know that you belong. You are longing back for fellowship with God. When we are longing for deep connections, we're longing for Eden. When we're longing for comfort and joy, some of the images that maybe we had in our perfect year, we are longing for Eden. Our problem is that no matter how hard we try, every war that we fought, everything that we've invented, everything we've tried to do, we have not been able to get back there. And that's why the story of the Bible is so important. Because the mission of God is to bring us back to Eden. When he sent Jesus, we, we focus sometimes just on one piece of what he did, and it's a really important piece. He came to bring forgiveness for our sins. But that important piece gets so much bigger when you realize all of the things that are intended by this. We, he, Jesus came to bring forgiveness so that we could be brought back to God and in fellowship with him and know him and be able to talk with him and experience his generosity and partner with him. When we're redeemed by Jesus, that is redeeming us so that suddenly we are renewed and we learn to be able to love and trust even those who are different from us. And even while we are not yet home, the Holy Spirit is given to us to give us a vision for our future, to long for it, to work for it, to hope for the home that we one day will have. We have stamped on our hearts a longing for God's people and God's place and God's rule, and Jesus is bringing that for us. And that's where we're going for the next three months. But it's also where we're going even in the next few minutes, because there is a sense that the table is a moment in Eden. I know it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't look like that. But in this moment at the table, God is drawing us near to himself through Jesus. And what's more, we're told in scripture that, that as God does that in Christ, as we're brought together through Jesus' death and resurrection for us, we're also brought closer to each other. Scripture says we who are many are one. There's differences in equality because we partake of the one bread we are united in Christ. And this meal that we enjoy is meant to make us think backwards and forwards, backwards to remember what Jesus has done for us, but forward to remember that there will be a day that we will be eating a feast together. And when we are eating that, we will be home. I'd like to give us just a couple of minutes to kind of prepare our hearts as we move towards the table. And for us maybe to think for a moment about how we have in different ways chased Eden apart from God. Augustine, a great theologian of the, you know, the early church, said our problem is not what we seek, it's how we seek it. 
We seek the things of God apart from God rather than seeking the things of God in God. And that is so much what sin is. We long for Eden, but we pursue it not in him, but apart from him. So I invite you even now to spend some time thinking about ways that we have have longed for things that has led us to disobedience, that has led us to a lack of love for each other, and to use this time to call us back to him as we then come to the table in a couple of minutes. Let's spend a couple of minutes in confession of our sins before God. Father, we thank you that as deeply as our hearts long for Eden, you even more deeply long it for us. That you have given everything, even your son, up to death, that you might redeem us and make all things new. Father, forgive us for not trusting that. Forgive us, please, for how we don't believe that you have our best interest at heart, and so we try to do things on our own and always make mistakes through it, and we always wrong you through it. And Lord, for our pride and our selfishness and the way we live out of fear, we confess this to you and ask for your forgiveness. Lord, please renew us. Give us the hope that comes in knowing your love for us. We pray even now that as we come to the table that you would reassure us of your love and of the future that we have through Christ in your place as your people under your rule. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Romans 8. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that has been to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.